just love you so much. Lord, when we say we're overwhelmed by you, Lord, there's just something about being in your presence, feeling the stillness, feeling the calm, feeling the peace. Lord, it's for no other reason than you're here. You're here to speak to our hearts. You're here to minister to our needs. You're here to give us what we have need of today. And, and Lord, the great thing is, you know what? You knew what each one of us needed from the very moment we woke up this morning until we find ourselves here in this moment. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would just open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Knowing, dear God, that whatever it is, the end result is we're going to be more like you. And that's the entire purpose of our coming here Sunday after Sunday. Is to become more and more like you until that day we see you face to face. So thank you for your presence. Thank you for ministering to our need. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ushers, would you come please? Again, for those of you who may have come in a little bit late, don't forget about the mission trip, July 11 through 18. There are packets out on the Welcome Center in the foyer. And uh, we want to see everybody start getting signed up. This is on first-come, first-served basis. So uh, we have room for 30. Uh, our, of course, our congregation will get first priority, but that doesn't mean that somebody from outside of our church who wants to go on a missions trip can go. Uh, but they have to understand that if there's somebody that wants to take their place and we don't have room for any more, they'll get booted and you guys will be able to go. So we want everyone to be a part of this. It's going to be a great time of fun and fellowship and and just hands-on mission work. And uh, Lord Jesus, that's why we give, is so that we can do mission work. Not specifically for this project, at least this week, but God, every week we give to support the mission of reaching this community with the good news of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take our gifts and multiply them however you see fit just to meet them in need. And, God, we will do our best in being faithful to share that good news with those who desperately need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for giving. Thank you, worship team. Did a great job. Boy, Jacob, you've been a busy man the last week. Been in Tulsa all week with Honor Choir, and a state Honor Choir, and then he comes home, and we, he's instant in season and out of season. And I got to be careful how I say that, because when you use the words in season around Jacob, he's ready to go grab his gun and go find whatever it is that's in season, so... How many of you here this morning 
have some type of claustrophobia? Go ahead, raise them up. Okay, now let me ask you this question. There was a lot of hands went up. How many of you might have claustrophobia when it comes to commitment? I didn't figure I'd get as many hands. But I think there's some of you that probably should have raised them. Let me, let me just share with you briefly for a moment from my childhood that I believe emphasizes, maybe it's too strong a word, that emphasizes the panic of making a commitment. You see, that's what I'm talking about, claustrophobia that comes from making a commitment and feeling like you're, you're locked into that commitment. Uh, here's the deal, though. Of course you're locked in. If, it weren't, if you weren't locked in, it wouldn't have been a commitment, right? All right. Well, the first example of commitment in my lifetime I want to share with you, it came in the form of a first, my first pet. I got it for my eighth birthday. And somewhere in our stuff, and who knows where that's at in the middle of a move, but there is a Polaroid snapshot. Uh, kids, for those of you who don't know what Polaroid is, a camera that used to print pictures on a page. Uh, um, there's a Polaroid snapshot of me and my black and white Boston Screwtail Bulldog, Belinda. Actually had one of those. He was small enough to fit in my dad's large hands when we got him. But he was cute enough to steal my eight-year-old heart. And uh, we named him Jody. Now, I'd play with Jody all day long, and his flat nose somehow intrigued me. And you know, I wouldn't tolerate this with anybody else, but with Jody, so what if he smelled like a dog? Um, you know, I'd take him to bed with me, and <clears throat> when you're in love with a dog, as I was with... With that Boston screw tail, even the odor was cute. And so what if he whined and whimpered and snored? And believe me, he could snore. Uh, I, I thought the noise was cute, at least back there when I was eight years old. So, and I even allowed him, I remember one specific instance, I wasn't too fond of him on this occasion, but he did his business on my pillow. And uh, that wasn't too cute, but, you know, I was able to forgive and move on. But here's the deal. My mom and dad, they didn't make me sign it, but there was an understanding that me and that dog had a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> and, and the agreement was like this. I was to be his caretaker. And at least at the first, I was very happy to oblige that. I fed him, I cleaned his dish, I watered him, and the minute he lapped up the water from his bowl, I'd fill it again and and my relationship with that dog was so good, it kept that screw tail, whatever little bit of it there was, wagging. And after the first few days of having Jody, my feelings began to change just a little bit. He's still my dog, I was still his friend, but I began to grow weary with his barking. And that dog was hungry all the time, which meant that I had to feed him all the time. And more than once, I heard those dreaded words from my mom and dad. He's your dog. Take care of him. Right? Emphasizing the commitment that I had made when they agreed to let me have a dog. 
Now, I particularly didn't like hearing those words, your dog. I wouldn't have minded the phrase, your dog to play with, or your dog when you want him, or your dog when he's behaving. And by the way, that wasn't very often. Uh, Jody and my relationship came to an end just one and a half years into its existence. When I came home and got off the school bus, my mom and dad were gone, and there were 23 dead chickens laying all over our yard. And Jody had this really guilty look on his face. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to Jody. He just disappeared. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that phrase, your dog, he's your dog, period. And that meant in sickness and in health... For richer, for poorer, in dryness and in wetness, you know, it it covered the whole gamut. And so, that's when it occurred to me, I'm stuck with this dog. Our courtship time was over, the honeymoon had ended, and we were mutually linked, or maybe I should say leashed together. Um, you know, Jody had gone from an obligation, or from an option to an obligation. He'd gone from being a pet to now he was a chore. He'd gone from someone to play with to someone that had to be cared for. Now, I gave you that stupid little example so that I can say what I'm getting ready to tell you. I call that, and this is my word, I've made it up. It's called stuckitis. I was stuck with him. And a a relationship that requires loyalty in order to survive is a relationship that requires commitment. But the problem, though, is that instead of being reminded, he's your dog, a lot of our commitments sound more like this. He's your husband. Or she's your wife. Or he's your child, or your parent, or your employee, or your boss, or even your roommate. All kinds of commitments to relationships that we deal with. And a lot of times the permanence that, are, that is involved in relationship can lead us to panic. At least it did for me, and I had to answer some very tough questions about that dog. Questions like, can I tolerate the same flat-nosed, hairy, hungry face every morning when I wake up. And I'm sure some of you wives can relate to that. Um, Or perhaps I'm going to be barked at. Am I going to be barked at every day of my life? And maybe some of our kids can connect with that. Or how about, will he ever learn to clean up his own mess? Parents, how many of you have ever said that about your kid? Absolutely. So this idea of commitment, it's a huge thing. And and as I said, I've stuck to, I've defined it as a condition of stuckitis. The questions we ask when we feel stuck with something or someone. I wrote a medical dictionary just this past week uh, prior to preparing this message that I described the condition stuckitis in, and I want to share it with you. Um, of course, to break that word down, the word 
stuck means trapped. And I guess the word itis is the four letters that you attach to any word that you want to sound impressive. So stuckitis. And, and, and let me share with you what, what Terry's manual of medical terms has to say about the condition stuckitis. Attacks of stuckitis are limited to people who breathe and which typically occur somewhere between birth and death. Stuckitis manifests itself in irritability, short fuses, and a mountain range of molehills. The common symptom of stuckitis victims is the repetition of questions beginning with who, what, and why. Who is this person? What was I thinking? And why didn't I listen to my mother? Now, fortunately, you think about it, you'll get it about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Fortunately, this prestigious manual identifies for us three ways in which to cope with this condition called stuckitis. Of course, you know I'm being silly. Three ways to deal with commitments that we feel stuck in. We can either flee, we can fight, or we can forgive. That's why I've entitled this message today, Loving the People You're Stuck With. Because friends, and as a part of the family of God, I don't like to think of it in terms of being stuck with each other. But you know what? There are those occasions when we can feel like we're stuck. Stuck into having to be at church because we have obligations there. Or, or stuck into being in a relationship uh, that, that has, has challenged us. And, and so there's all kinds of things that, that can cause stuckitis to rear its ugly head. But fortunately, these three methods, flee, fight, or forgive, there's some, uh, some people who opt to flee from their commitment. It's simple, just get out of the relationship and start again elsewhere. Although they're often surprised when the condition surfaces itself on the other side of the fence as well. Then there, there are those who choose to choose option number two, to fight. And we see homes become combat zones. We see offices become literal boxing rings. And tension becomes just a way of life in many of our situations. But there are a select few, I believe, that select the other method of treatment. And it's the best one. It's called forgiveness. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I don't have any definition for you as to how forgiveness occurs. But fortunately... The Bible has one for us. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number 13. Chapter 13, beginning with, I think it's verse number 1, yes. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Lord Jesus, of all the things that you've called us to do, As believers, probably at the top of that tough list is this idea of forgiveness. As I said, Lord, I don't know how it takes place. I only know the benefits of it. And so, Lord, in this message this morning, help me to to convey to these people, Lord, the importance and not only the importance but the blessing the eternal blessing that comes from being a forgiving person rather than fleeing and rather than fighting with those whom we are engaged in commitment with. So, Holy Spirit, we turn this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, I believe, had to know the feeling of being stuck with someone. For three and a half years, he'd walked and talked with these disciples. Yes, he was God, but I'm sure he, on occasion, got frustrated with them. I mean, how would you like to deal with the Apostle Peter, who every time somebody challenges him, he just pulls out his sword and lops their ear off? And then there's James and John whose favorite strategy was to call down fire from heaven and wipe out all of the opponents of Jesus. Kind of goes against what Jesus was all about, you know. And so I'm sure he, from time to time, had this feeling of being stuck with these 12 guys. He's ran with them for three years, and by and large, he's seen the same dozen or so faces around the table, around the campfire, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They've ridden in the same boats. They've walked the same roads. They've visited the same houses. They have done everything together. So how did Jesus stay so devoted to these 12 guys? We see, not only did Jesus have to put up with their visible oddities, Jesus had the benefit of knowing their invisible quirks as well. I mean, he's God, right? He knows everything about every one of us. He knew everything about every one of them. Uh, Jesus knew not only their unspoken thoughts that they were having, he knew their private doubts about him and about his mission. And not only that, but he also knew that they were going to have future doubts, about what their role was going to be in Jesus' coming kingdom and and were they going to be able to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus isn't seeing all of this and he's, I got to think in my mind's eye, sometimes getting alone by himself and just shaking his head and going, these guys, they just don't get it. And here I am, I'm stuck with them. 
What if you knew every mistake your loved one had ever made and every mistake they ever would make? Would you have still made the commitment? Jesus did. What if you ever knew every thought they would ever have about you? Every irritation that they have with you. Every dislike they have of you. Every betrayal. Jesus knew all of these things ahead of time. And yet he loved them. And he stuck with them. As I said, I'm guessing it must have been really hard for Jesus to love characters like Simon Peter. Knowing that Peter was one day going to deny him not one time, not two times, but three times on the night when Jesus needed him the most. Even just a few days before Jesus' death, see James and John arguing about which one of them was going to be the best in Jesus' coming kingdom. Which one of them was going to have the seat next to Jesus? Again, I'm just envisioning Jesus shaking his head, wondering, where did I come up with these guys? Now, very, very few situations stir panic like that of being strapped, uh, stuck. Let me say it that way. Trapped, stuck, whatever you want to call it, in a relationship. Because you know what, friends? It's one thing to be stuck with a puppy. But it's an altogether different thing to be stuck in a marriage or in a relationship of some kind with someone. Jeremy, I saw you pat Rachel's leg there. Uh, You're listening to the wrong things and putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, my friend. (laughs) Um, And, 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 you know, yeah, we, we chuckle when we use silly terms like stuckitis, but But for many, this idea of being committed to a relationship, whether it's with one another or whether it's our relationship with Jesus, it's not a laughing matter. And it's for that reason that I I believe it's important that we discover how to deal with these challenges to relationships. And the way that Jesus did it was by possessing a heart full of forgiveness. Man, there is no bigger topic that I could choose to preach on in any church in America or around the world today than this topic of forgiveness. Because, friends, unforgiveness exists in every church family, in every relationship. And it's so critical that we learn to forgive because you know what the Bible says? If you can't forgive one another, you can't be forgiven by God. And it's hugely important that we be forgiven by God, amen? So I don't, want, I don't want anything standing between my ability to be forgiven, and that means that I myself must be a forgiving person. So the question then becomes, how did Jesus do it? How did he forgive these disciples? How did he love these disciples? And here in our scripture text that we read from John chapter 13 this morning, I believe that all of the time that we, different times that we see the bowing knees of Jesus in the Gospels, there is none that's quite so important or precious as this time when he kneels before his disciples and washes their grimy feet. It's the night of the Passover feast. 
And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world. He knew, again, knowing what everything that lay ahead of him, he knew that within the next 24 hours, he's going to be found guilty at a mock trial. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be bruised. And ultimately nailed to a cross as a common criminal. He knows all of that's coming. He knows that he's going to die. But he knows what happens three days later as well. But he also knows that no one among these 12 guys that he's been stuck with for three and a half years has any idea of what's getting ready to happen. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus in this expression of washing their feet shows the full extent of his love for them. Because it had been a long day, the city of Jerusalem was packed with what history tells us was probably hundreds of thousands of Passover guests who returned to Jerusalem annually on this great feast day. And most of them are clamoring for a glimpse of the teacher whom they've heard about. I mean, Jesus has gathered a great following as a result of his ministry by this time. And they know that Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem. And so there are many people in this city uh, who are clamoring to see him. And we know that because when he came into the city, he was riding on a donkey and and it it became like a parade. Here's Jesus riding down the street and the people that have gathered, they're throwing palm branches in front of Jesus to welcome him as their what they thought was going to be their coming king. So it's been a long day. The sun is warm. The streets are dry. These disciples and Jesus are a long way from their earthly home in Galilee. And boy, it would sure be refreshing to have a splash of water on dry, dusty feet. Now, you have to understand something. There's a towel hanging on the wall of this room that they're gathered in. And on the floor sits a pitcher and a basin. And anybody in this room, there are 13 of them, Jesus and his 12 disciples, anybody in this room could have gotten up from the table, went over and filled the basin, grabbed the towel, and began to wash one another's feet. But nobody did it but Jesus. He stands to his feet, he removes his outer garment, he wraps the servant's girdle around his waist, takes up the basin, and he begins to kneel one by one before these disciples. He lifts their feet, places them in the basin, covers them with water, and begins to bathe them. Grimy, one grimy foot after another. Until he works his way down the entire row of 12 disciples. Now, here's what you need to understand about this act. In Jesus' day, the washing of feet was a common task that was carried out by not just any servant, but the lowest servant in one's household. Since they walked barefoot or in sandals, their feet were always dirty when they entered someone's house. And so every Jewish house would have this basin and water and a towel available. But then the slowest servant on the totem pole would come and wash the feet of the guests. Um, but in this case, 
the one with the towel and the basin is the king of the universe. Not a lowly servant. He's the one that shaped the stars and hung the moon. His were the fingers that formed mountains. And those same fingers are now massaging toes. The one before whom all nations will one day kneel now kneels before disciples. And I can't let this pass. One of these disciples is named Judas. And the devil has already put it into the heart of Judas what he's getting ready to do. And that is he's getting ready to betray Jesus and hand him into the, under, into the control of Roman authorities. And he's doing it for 30 pieces of silver. He's getting ready to betray Jesus. And you remember what I said? Jesus knows the thoughts. He knows everything that everybody's getting ready to do. He already knows what Jesus or what Judas is getting ready to do. And yet, he washes his feet. What thoughts must have been going through Jesus' mind as he's washing the feet of his soon-to-be betrayer? You see, of all the times that we would expect Jesus to to command the attention of all the disciples, this would be it. But he doesn't in a way that none of them can imagine. These 24 feet are going to spend the next day in hiding rather than with their master at the greatest point of his of need in his life. They're going to be running for their own lives. They're going to They're going to dash for cover for fear of the Romans arresting them as they're getting ready to arrest Jesus. And the only pair of feet that is not going to be loyal to him in terms of of relationship is getting ready to betray him into the hands of evil men. And yet Jesus, full of love for even his betrayer, Washes his feet. You know, I've looked for a Bible translation that reads, Jesus washed all the feet except the feet of Judas. I can't find it. Must have been a passionate moment when Jesus silently lifts the feet of his betrayer and washes them. So can you even begin to grasp the enormity of this act That Jesus is carrying out with his followers. Knowing what every one of them are about to do. He knows they're about to perform the vilest act of their lives. And desert him. He knows that by morning. They're going to be burying their heads in shame. And staring at their feet in disgust. But he wants them to remember one thing in particular about him. And that's this. When they are staring at their feet in disgust from their heads hanging down at what's getting ready to happen. He wants them to remember that he washed those feet. He washed those feet as a servant would do for their master. He wants them to realize that those feet are still clean. Because verse 7 told us you don't understand now what I'm doing but you will later. 
This is a, an enormous act of love and devotion. Love and devotion. Boy, those are two interesting words. Especially when it comes to talking about commitment. You see, love isn't always butterflies and warm fuzzies. Is it? Devotion isn't always everything being wonderful 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Love and devotion exist even when things aren't really good. Even when things look like they're heading south in a big hurry. That's what the case was here. Things were really getting ready to to turn bad for this group. And Jesus wants them to know that he still loves them. He's still devoted to them regardless of what's getting ready to happen. But look at their response to their commitment to him. They all check out. Literally and emotionally. They walk away. It's amazing to me that when Jesus said, you don't understand what's happening, but someday you will. That what Jesus was talking about is, he's already forgiving their sin before they even commit it. I know what you're getting ready to do. I know you're getting ready to desert me. But I'm forgiving you in advance. And I want you to know that there's nothing that you could do that would ever cause me to leave you. He's showing them mercy before they even realized that they needed it. You know, we object, say, oh, I could never do that. My hurt is is so deep. My wounds are so many. When I just see that person that I'm in opposition with, I, I just cringe in anger just at the very sight of them. That's a typical response that we have. And as we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, perhaps the problem is not that person that we're in conflict with, but perhaps it's us. Maybe we're the ones that need the attitude adjustment. We have to remember that the secret of being like Jesus is keeping our eyes fixed on him and on his ways. Not on our ways, the way that we would handle things. If we, if we shift our gaze away from the one who has hurt us and set our eyes on the one who has saved us, perhaps the relationship can be, remain intact. And that's what Jesus was wanting to get through to these disciples. You're going to desert me. Every one of you is going to go your own way. One of you is going to be, one of you is going to betray me. But I want you to know there's nothing you could ever do that will cause me to leave you or to stop loving you. What an example of forgiveness. This same John who wrote the words of John 13 says in a later letter, 1 John chapter 1 verse number 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
You know, apart from the geography and the chronology of this story, our story is really the same story as this story with the disciples. No, we weren't in Jerusalem. We weren't alive on that night. But what Jesus did for them on that evening, he still does for us. He's cleansed our hearts. He's washed our hearts clean from the filth of sin. And even more, that cleansing goes on and on. Quick poll with two questions. How many of you have ever failed Jesus? How many of you have ever failed Jesus more than once? Here's the amazing thing about our relationship with him. That cleansing that I I mentioned a moment ago, it's ongoing. He just keeps cleansing and cleansing and washing us clean. That's his end of the commitment. You see, friends... We have a covenant relationship with Jesus. None of us sign a contract to be in relationship with Jesus, right? And there's a very important distinction between a covenant and a contract. In a contract, both parties to the contract sign their name, indicating that both parties are going to perform the requirements of the contract in order for the contract to stand. In other words, uh, if I'm selling my house, I'm going to provide a clear title to the person who is buying it as long as the person buying it comes forward with the funds to pay me for buying my house, right? So that's the contract. A covenant relationship, on the other hand, is an agreement between two people where the performance of just one person keeps the covenant intact. And the reason that's important is because you and I cannot keep the covenant that we've made with Jesus, the commitment that we've made with Jesus, intact because we have this problem. We keep on sinning. Jesus, on the other hand, says, because it's a covenant relationship, I'm going to continue doing my part, therefore the the covenant remains binding. And his part is... I'm going to keep cleansing you no matter how much you mess up. I'm going to keep cleansing you and forgiving you because I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Not even till the end. I'm with you. And we are in covenant relationship. But that's not all he does. Not only does he reach into the basin of his grace and scoop a handful of mercy and wash away our sin... The rest of it is this. He lives in us and makes it possible for us to do the same thing with those whom we are in relationship with. One another. Any of you ever figured out how difficult it is to forgive someone who's messed on you? Boy, it's tough. And there have been some situations in my life where the hurt was so deep Uh, There have been situations in my life when I've inflicted hurt that was so deep that the common person would say, how could anybody ever forgive him for that? Or I could think in my own mind, I don't know if I can ever forgive them for what they've done to me. 
But Jesus living in us makes it possible for us to forgive. And as I said earlier, it's important that we understand how to forgive. Because we want to be forgiven. You see, because Jesus has forgiven us, he's made it possible for us to forgive others. He has this forgiving heart and he says, if I can live in you in the presence of my Holy Spirit, I can make you a person who also has a forgiving heart. He said in verses 14 and 15 of that same John chapter number 13, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also should wash each other's feet. I've done this as an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Now, I'm not advocating necessarily that we get a basin and a towel and wash one another's feet. But I am advocating this. That when we have ought against one another, when we have sin, uh, when we have offense against one another, we need to be willing to take the basin of mercy. And give grace to the one who has offended or hurt us. And in so doing, we can forgive. It is not humanly possible for us to forgive in our own strength. It's not. And if you think about it, you know what I mean. Think back to people who have hurt you. Yeah, I'm, I'm trusting that you've forgiven them, but you've not forgotten it. Right? Jesus, on the other hand, says, I've taken your sin and tossed it into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered against you again. Now, let me just clarify something. Jesus isn't forgetful, but he does choose by an act of his will to not remember it ever again. That means the ability to move on. To move on beyond the hurt. To move on beyond the offense. And love one another. You see, Jesus washes our feet for two reasons. The first is to give us mercy and the second is to give us a message. Simply stated, the message is this. I offer unconditional grace. And I want you to be able to offer unconditional grace. Those of us who are believers this morning, we know what it's like to receive grace. Amen? Do you know what God's expectation of those of us who have received his grace is? That we give grace to one another. The same grace to one another. Uh, There there is no bury the hatchet forgiveness. You've heard that term. Well, let's just bury the hatchet and we'll move on. You know why people like the idea of burying the hatchet forgiveness? Because the handle's sticking out of the ground, and if they ever need to, if it ever happens again, they can go grab it and say, See, I told you so. That's not the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about. He's talking about sin that will never be remembered against us again. The mercy of Christ precedes our mistakes. Even before we make them, He's already forgiving us. Our mercy must precede. The mistakes of others. If you're in a commitment with someone this morning. I know you've already figured this out. I'm just giving you by way of a reminder. That person you're committed to. Is going to mess up. 
They're going to hurt you, whether willingly or unwillingly. They're, they're, they're going to do things that just cause you to have to grit your teeth. Give them mercy in advance. I don't care what Brenda does or might do down the road that might be hurtful to me. I've purposed in my heart, I'm already forgiving her. And I hope she's doing the same with me, which occurs all too often. But that's the kind of people we, that Jesus wants us to be. Quick to forgive. You know, I, I don't want to have to spend time deciding, okay, now they did this and this was their reason and they're probably going to do it again. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can take a chance and forgive this time. Well, that's certainly a choice you can make. But it's also a choice that will send you to hell. Because in doing that, God is doing the same with us. You can't forgive them. I won't forgive you. And by the way, folks, that's not my translation. That's what the Word of God says. Those in the circle of Jesus had no doubt that he loved them. Do people in our circle... Do, our, do people in our circle of friends here, here at Trinity Faith Church, does everybody know that we love them? That we care about them? That there's nothing that they could do that would ever separate them from that circle? What does it mean to have a heart like Jesus? It means to kneel as he knelt, to even have to deal with the grimy parts of the people that we're stuck with. Washing away their unkindness with our own kindness. The Apostle Paul said it best in Ephesians 4.32. He said, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you. And you know, I've done this myself and I've seen other people do it, heard other people do it. They'll say, well, uh, but I, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not the one who cheated. I'm not the one who lied. I'm not the guilty party here. Well, you know what? Maybe you aren't. But Jesus certainly wasn't. And he did it anyway. Of all the men in that upper room, only one was worthy of having his feet washed by someone else. And yet he's the one that took the water and the basin and the towel. The one worthy of being served, served others. Let that statement sink in just a moment. The one worthy of being served, served others. You know, we live in such a day and age of entitlement. Everybody needs to be working to meet my needs. That's not Christ-like. Do everything that you can to serve one another. Be kind to one another. Serve one another. Be tender-hearted with one another. You see, the genius of this example that Jesus gives here in this story is that the act of building bridges or restoring breaches or breaks in relationships is initiated by the stronger one, not the weaker one. Do you get that? The one involved in 
initiating bridge building is the one who was, has been hurt, not the one who's done the hurting. Now that's different from what the world will tell you. But that's what Jesus is doing here. More often than not, if the one in the right volunteers to wash the feet of the one in the wrong, both parties are going to wind up on their knees asking for forgiveness of one another. And everybody, everybody here, we always think we're the ones that's right all the time, right? So what do we do? We wash each other's feet. We offer forgiveness before it's needed. And that brings me to this principle as I get ready to close that each of us need to grasp and we need to understand fully. Relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. Relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. Hasn't been long ago, I read the story of a husband and wife who were going through a great storm in their relationship. Through a series of events, the wife had learned of her husband's act of infidelity. It had occurred more than a decade ago, and her husband had made the mistake of thinking that it would be better not to tell her, uh, so he hadn't. And as you can well imagine, she somehow found out, and she was deeply hurt by what she found out. And upon the advice of their counselor, the couple dropped everything and went away for several days together because they had to make a decision about the commitment that they'd made to one another long ago. Would they flee, would they fight, or would they forgive? Well, here's what they did. They prayed, they talked, they walked, they reflected. And in this case, the wife was clearly in the right. She could have left realizing that other women have done so with lesser justification than what she had. But she could also stay with him and make his life a living hell. Other women had done that as well. But she chose a different response. On the tenth night of their trip away together, the husband found a card on his pillow on which was printed this verse. Not a scripture verse, a poetic verse. I'd rather do nothing with you than something without you. Beneath the verse, she wrote these words. I forgive you. I love you. Let's move on. I'd rather do nothing with you than something without you. You know, that card might as well have been a basin. The pen that wrote those words might as well have been a pitcher of water. For out of that pen flowed mercy and with that that wife washed her husband's feet in a very symbolic sense you know there are certain conflicts in our lives friends which can only be resolved with a basin of water figuratively speaking and as i close this this morning as the worship team comes the reason i brought this message to you this morning ahead of the next sermon series that we're going to be starting on february 2nd is I want us to start this year off purposed in our hearts that we are going to be forgiving people. I understand that things have happened and 
the past for each of us. Things that in our humanity we can't just ignore and, and forget or choose not to remember as Jesus does. But we can forgive and we can choose to move on. We can convey mercy. We can give grace. Uh, you know, when, when, we, when we're in conversation with someone and, and, and a person's name comes up that perhaps we've had an issue with who knows how long ago, you know what the worst thing you can do is? Talk about that thing that happened a long time ago. Forget it. Move on. You ever tried to unscramble an egg after you've broken it open? It can't be done. So what's happened in the past is done. It's over with. Clean the slate for yourself and for the other person. And move on. God's got better things for you than to wallow in the, the muck and the mire of what happened way back when. And so I, I wanted to bring this message this morning just on this third Sunday of 2020 just to challenge you as we move into a sermon series that we, I'm going to title Loving God and Loving Each Other. It's going to be the longest sermon series I've ever done. You know why? Because we're doing it for the rest of the year. The way to love God, the way to begin to love one another, starts with forgiveness. So as Jacob plays, I want you to just ask the Lord to reveal to you this morning through his Holy Spirit any relationships in your life that may be thirsty for mercy. Are, are there those who who sit around your table on a regular basis, who need to be assured of your grace that you're going to deal with them in future events. You see, Jesus' act on this night before his death made sure his disciples had no doubt, no reason to doubt his care and his love for them. Wouldn't it be a great thing to go through the entire year of 2020 not wondering if somebody loved you, but knowing it? That's what I want us to have for each other. You see, the, way, the best way to show that you love God is by loving one another. I want to see us love one another as we've never loved one another before in the year ahead. Would you bow with me, please? Lord Jesus, there's just a, an uncanny quiet in this room this morning. And I'm, I'm just sensing, Lord, that the reason for that is because this message that you just kind of dropped on my heart this past week is connecting with someone here, Lord, who has had issues of forgiveness. And Lord, in my own life, I think about people that I've had issues with 
that I was in need of forgiving. (laughs) Some of them knowing that I would never see them again, never have to deal with them again. Some of them who passed on to glory, never going to, Never going to have to deal with forgiving them for anything ever again. And Lord, as you convicted my own heart this week of perhaps things that I've held on to for far too long, just the joy and the peace, knowing, Lord, that, hey, you've forgiven me. I can forgive someone else. I want each of us to have that this year, Jesus. I don't want there to be anything that stands between us and right relationship with you or one another. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to reveal to each of us this morning those areas where a basin of mercy is needed and help us to act upon it. I'd like for you to stand to your feet with me this morning. This is not the kind of message that you end with an invitation and a show of hands. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you know. There's no need of me pressing the issue any further. You know if God is speaking to you. And so I just, I just want us to think about this as we sing together. One of the reasons I put that song that we sang earlier, the more I seek you, the more I find you. The reason I put that in the set this morning is for this very moment. You see, you can't sit at the feet of Jesus and feel the warmth of his embrace if you have things in your heart that separate you from right relationship with him. And I I, I want us to be able to do that. I want us to just... This, this may sound silly. You probably heard me say it before. I'm going to say it again. A lot of times when I'm dealing with heart issues like this, and I feel, I ask God for the forgiveness, for the mercy, for the, for the grace, I just take this real deep breath. I just bring it in and I just let it out. It's like starting over. Okay, God, that's all out now. That's all out now, and I, I, I can be restored to full relationship with you.